Welcome back to The Last Word, a true life podcast that asks, what is the significance of a person's dying words and what is their impact on those left behind? I'm your host, Sarah Faith. Each episode, I will explore themes of life and death. Some stories may be well known to you, others may not. You can find me on Facebook at Sarah Faith Larson and on Twitter at Sarah Loves Words. This episode, I'm looking at odd but tragic deaths. Now for the disclaimer. This episode contains accounts of unnatural deaths, including suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I'm also providing the toll-free number for the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. If you or someone you know needs support for thoughts of suicide, please call 1-800-273-8255. Professionals are there to help 24-7, always confidential and no cost to you. Now, back to the show. Our first story doesn't have any final words from the victims, but was too odd and tragic to overlook. Buenos Aires, 1988. A poodle named Cachi was playing on the balcony of the Montoya's 13th floor apartment when he slipped through the guardrail and fell on the head of a passerby. 75-year-old Marta Espina and the poodle died instantly, but it doesn't end there. The 46-year-old Edith Sola was across the street and witnessed the accident. Without thinking, she ran into traffic and was struck and killed by a bus. An unidentified man who had just emerged from the pharmacy witnessed the three deaths, suffered a heart attack, and died on the way to the hospital, bringing the death toll to four, counting the poodle. If that's the most bizarre thing you've ever heard, keep listening. Predestination is a tenant of the Presbyterian faith. According to the last words of our next tragic victim, destiny may have played a role in his death. Ohio statesman Clement Laird Van Dauenheim had a colorful past, including being dismissed from Jefferson College without a degree, following a dispute with the college president, and exile by President Lincoln to the Confederate South, Bermuda, and Canada. In 1871, the war was over, and Val was a middle-aged lawyer in Ohio. He represented Thomas McGeehan, a man accused of fatally shooting Tom Myers during a barroom brawl. Convinced of his client's innocence, he chose to demonstrate that Myers had shot himself while withdrawing his pistol from a kneeling position. Allegedly, Val was warned by his fellow defense attorneys that the pistol he carried in his pocket contained three rounds and he should discharge them lest he suffer an unwanted injury. He scoffed and assured his colleagues he was in no danger. He knelt and withdrew the pistol from his pocket as he recreated the events and, you guessed it, shot himself in the abdomen. My God, I've shot myself! Twelve hours later, on his deathbed, he confessed, I am a firm believer in that good old Presbyterian doctrine of predestination. His demonstration proved his theory, and his client was acquitted and released, only to be fatally shot four years later in another saloon shootout. That sounds like a whole lot of destiny. Austrian-born Franz Reichelt was a Parisian tailor with big dreams of inventing a wearable parachute. In an era when the Wright brothers had achieved aviation success, Franz was convinced his suit would allow aviators to glide to a safe landing when bailing out of their crafts mid-air. Armed with turn-of-the-century ambition and a knowledge of clothing design, he was determined to prove his suit's efficacy. 
he succeeded with a dummy from the fifth floor of his apartment building. After repeated petitions to the Paris police prefecture to test his invention, he was granted permission to test his invention with a dummy from the first platform of the Eiffel Tower. On February 4th, 1912, Franz arrived at the Eiffel Tower and announced he intended to perform a live jump. He could not be dissuaded by friends or authorities. He told the press he would prove that his parachute was perfectly safe and had no need for safety tethers. To the Paris Times, Franz said, I want to try the experiment myself without trickery, as I intend to prove the worth of my invention. Two days prior, on a whim, an American named Frederick Law had successfully parachuted from the viewing platform of Lady Liberty's torch. His chute opened before he hit the ground. He limped away carrying his 100-pound parachute and declined to be interviewed by the press. Perhaps Law's success influenced Franz's choice to attempt the perilous jump. A guard blocked his entrance to the platform, which led to an argument. You are going to see how my 72 kilos and my parachute will give your arguments the most decisive of denials. Franz was shaken up by the argument, but was permitted to pass. With a cinematographer and friends in tow, he turned and waved to the crowd of about 30 journalists and curious spectators. A bientôt, see you soon, were his last words. At 8.22 a.m., he tore a piece of paper from a book and released it into the stiff, chilly breeze. He placed one foot on the guardrail, hesitated for half a minute, smiled, and then leapt. His parachute failed to deploy, and he fell 187 feet onto the frozen lawn below. Newspapers reported that his right arm and leg, skull, and spine had been crushed by the fall. He died with his eyes open wide in an expression of shock. Side note, video exists of the jump, though I have not watched it. The press dubbed him the reckless inventor. He was only 33. Larry Walters, also known as Lawn Chair Larry, was the pilot of Inspiration One, an aircraft of his own design. Larry Walters had a lifelong dream of aviation, but his poor eyesight prevented him from becoming a pilot in the U.S. Air Force. An idea 20 years in the making, Larry dreamt up a plan to rig weather balloons filled with helium to a lightweight garden variety lawn chair. His girlfriend, Carol Van Dusen, helped Larry obtain 45 eight-foot weather balloons and helium from a party supply store using a fake letter from Film Flare Studios that claimed the supplies were for a commercial they were shooting. Larry attached the balloons to a lawn chair and filled them with helium. He strapped on a parachute and secured himself to the chair with belts. For communication, he had a CB radio, and to facilitate a soft landing, he was armed with a pellet gun to pop the balloons. Ready to live out his childhood dream of being a pilot, he brought a camera along, but later admitted he was too excited to take one picture. He also brought refreshments, sandwiches, and cold beer. That's right, 
the lawn chair pilot brought beer on his maiden voyage. For me, that speaks to his credibility as an inventor and a navigator. More of a juvenile joyride with no awareness of danger or consequences than a great inventor taking to the skies. That would soon change. On July 2nd, 1982, from his backyard in San Pedro, California, Larry's friends cut the ropes that tethered Inspiration One to his Jeep. Larry and his chair rose rapidly to 15,000 feet. Video exists of his liftoff. In it, his girlfriend pleads with him to come back, that everyone wants him to come back because he dropped his glasses. He replied that he was not ready to come back, and he brought a spare pair of glasses with him. The altitude must have cleared away the euphoria and filled him with a large dose of reality. Larry found himself unable to navigate and afraid to shoot out any of the balloons. His plans for simple navigation and a soft landing seemed less than well thought out. After 45 minutes aloft, he shot out several of the balloons, then dropped his pellet gun. He drifted into Long Beach Airport airspace. With his CB, he radioed to his friends on the ground that he was okay and to contact the airport of the situation. A TWA pilot radioed the tower that he was passing a man in a lawn chair at 16,000 feet. The dangling rope tethers became entangled in some power cords, which led to a 20-minute blackout in a Long Beach neighborhood. Larry abandoned Inspiration One and climbed down to the ground where the police were waiting for him. He was arrested and fined $4,000 for violating airspace. The fine was later reduced to $1,500. When a journalist asked why he'd done it, Larry replied, I had this dream for 20 years. If I hadn't done it, I would have ended up in the funny farm. A man can't just sit around. I wonder if the rest of that sentence was, can't just sit around on the ground, but we should have the right to sit around in the sky with beer and sandwiches. Larry's stunt gained momentum and propelled him into infamy. He received top prize from the Dallas Bonehead Award, a Darwin Award in 1993, and appeared on The Tonight Show and The David Letterman Show, where he said his two-hour lawn chair voyage was the most fun he'd ever had. Later, the TV show Mythbusters recreated the voyage of Inspiration One. The navigator was airborne for 30 minutes before shooting down the balloons with a pellet gun. Larry saw his aviation endeavor endeavor as the culmination of a 20-year dream. He never wanted to be the butt of jokes. He quit his job as a truck driver and briefly worked as a spokesperson for Timex, appeared on several game shows, and gave motivational speeches, though he never achieved much financial success. He parted ways with his longtime girlfriend. He volunteered with the U.S. Forest Service and began working as a security guard. Larry gave away his lawn chair to a neighborhood kid named Jerry. He later regretted this decision when the Smithsonian asked him to donate the chair. Twenty years later, a man conducting research for a website about the historical flight located Jerry and the chair, which had been sitting in his garage, rope tethers intact. October 6, 1993, Larry Walters hiked into the Los Angeles National Forest and shot himself in the chest. His family said they knew of no motive for his suicide. He was a veteran of the Vietnam War. He never married and had no children. He was survived by his sister and mother. He was 44 years old.
Thornton Jones, a lawyer in Bangor, Wales, awoke to discover his throat was slit. Motioning for a pencil and paper, he wrote, I dreamt that I had done it. I awoke to find it true. An article published in the Washington, D.C. Evening Star read, Evidence that he may have cut his own throat was given at an inquest. He lived 80 minutes after the infliction of the wound, during which time it was stated he cried out to his wife and son, Forgive me, forgive me. The inquest ruled his death is suicide while temporarily insane. Today it might be ruled an act of automatism or a brief unconscious involuntary act. Something I noticed in my research, there is a long list of performers who have died of heart attacks on stage. Stress, poor diet, pre-existing conditions. Heart attacks are unplanned, often unexpected, and not deliberate. Still, there is a much shorter list of people who have shot themselves in front of a live audience. Before I illuminate this list, I must ask, what possesses someone to commit such a spectacular act of violence? If I witnessed something like that, no doubt I'd be traumatized for life. When we purchase a ticket or turn on the news, we never expect to see someone commit such an act. I am torn between pitying these individuals and resenting their reckless final acts and how they harmed innocent onlookers. Emil Hazda was a comic actor in Poland. On April 11, 1904, Hazda took six curtain calls following his performance of the hit play, The Twin Sister. During curtain calls, he proposed marriage to a fellow cast member. When she rejected him, he came back onto the stage and shot himself in the head. The armchair psychiatrist in me says Mr. Hosda valued his ego above the gift of his own life and obvious talents. Blowing out your brains in front of the audience that has just lauded you has to be one of the most egotistical, selfish, unstable, and reckless things I have ever heard. Not to mention weak. As for the actress in question, she literally and figuratively dodged a bullet when she said no to this unstable man. I wish I knew what the aftermath of this action was, but nothing else has been written about it. Politician R. Bud Dwyer served as the 30th Treasurer of Pennsylvania from January 1981 through January 1987. After being convicted of 11 counts of conspiracy, mail fraud, perjury and interstate transportation in aid of racketeering, he faced a prison sentence of up to 55 years. State law prevented Dwyer from being removed as treasurer before his sentencing. January 22, 1987, he called for a press conference where his colleagues believed he would publicly resign his position. The following is a note written by Dwyer the night before the press conference. I enjoy being with Joe so much. The next 20 years or so would have been wonderful. Tomorrow is going to be so difficult. I hope I can go through with it. On the morning of January 23, 1987, in Harrisburg, Dwyer began reading from a 21-page prepared statement. Before completing the last page, Dwyer went off script and continued his pleas of innocence. These are his final words. I've repeatedly said that I'm not going to resign as state treasurer. After many hours of thought and meditation, I've made a decision that should not be an example to anyone because it is unique to my situation. 
Last May, I told you after the trial, I would give you the story of the decade. To those of you who are shallow, the events of this morning will be that story. But to those of you with depth and concern, the real story will be what I hope and pray results from this morning in the coming months and years, the development of a true justice system here in the United States. I am going to die in office in an effort to see if the shameful facts spread out in all their shame will not burn through our civic shamelessness and set fire to the American pride. Please tell my story on every radio and television station and in every newspaper and magazine in the U.S. Please leave immediately if you have a weak stomach or mind, since I don't want to cause physical or mental distress. Joanne, Rob, Didi, I love you. Thank you for making my life so happy. Goodbye to all of you on the count of three. Please make sure that the sacrifice of my life is not in vain. Dwyer had hidden a 357 Magnum in an envelope under the podium. When he had finished speaking, he removed the gun and said, Please leave the room if this will affect you. He inserted the barrel of the gun into his mouth and pulled the trigger. Sitting in the front row was Frederick L. Cusick, a friend of Dwyer's and a journalist. Years later, he was quoted by the L.A. Times. I should have run and grabbed him when he pulled out the envelope. I knew what it was. An edited version of the event was later aired by the media, but contrary to the urban legend, it was never broadcast live. Here's the aftermath of Bud Dwyer's death. In 2010, a documentary called Honest Man, The Life of Our Bud Dwyer was released. It featured an interview with William T. Smith, a former committee chairman and witness in Dwyer's trial. In it, he admits that he lied under oath about having offered a bribe to Dwyer with the intention of not implicating himself and his wife for their roles in the bribery conspiracy. He expressed his regret for the role his perjured testimony played in Dwyer's final act. I can hardly believe there is a second tale like this one. Christine Chubbuck grew up in Hudson, Ohio, with her parents and two brothers. She obtained a degree in broadcasting from Boston University in 1965. In the early 1970s, she was hired as a reporter for WXLT in Columbia, South Carolina. She took her work seriously, which caught the attention of the station's owner, who gave her a morning show called Suncoast Digest that discussed community affairs like alcoholism, drug users, and other taboo issues. Christine had a history of battling depression and was seeing a psychiatrist for help. She attempted suicide in 1970 through drug overdose. Her family was aware of her battle with depression and suicidal ideations. The stigma of mental health struggles stopped her mother from informing Christine's employer for fear that her daughter would lose her position at the station. Christine told her family that she felt unable to connect with people and had not dated anyone for years. She lamented to her co-workers that her 30th birthday was approaching and she was still a virgin who had only dated two men. One of those men had died in a car accident, which greatly impacted her. In 1973, she had an ovary removed and was told that if she did not become pregnant in the next several years, that the odds of ever conceiving were slim. She told a news editor she worked with that she had bought a gun and was going to kill herself on air. Her colleague dismissed her remarks as a sick joke 
and change the subject. On July 15, 1974, Christine arrived at the studio but made a slight change to her routine by reading the headlines at the news desk while her guests waited on the other side of the studio. After spending eight minutes reading national news, she moved on to a story about a local shooting from the previous day. When the newsreel would not play, it is said that Christine shrugged it off and said, In keeping with Channel 40's policy of bringing you the latest in blood and guts in living color, you are going to see another first, an attempted suicide. She reached under the desk and pulled out a 38 Smith & Wesson revolver and shot herself behind the right ear. Concerned viewers called the studio to ask if the scene had been staged. Christine never shared with her family her plan to attempt suicide on live television. Her mother stated, It was simply because her personal life was not enough. That statement diminishes the poor woman's struggle with mental health. The station manager obtained the script from which Christine had been reading. Her on-air suicide attempt was scripted in, as well as a statement to be read by whichever colleague took over for her. In her script, Christine labeled her condition as critical. She was rushed to Sarasota Memorial Hospital, the same hospital where, in 1968, she had volunteered organizing puppet shows for children with learning disabilities. She died 14 hours later. Presbyterian minister Thomas Beeson delivered her eulogy. We suffer at our sense of loss. We are frightened by her rage. We are guilty in the face of her rejection. We are hurt by her choice of isolation, and we are confused by her message. I wonder if anyone believed that this was Christine's Presbyterian predestiny. Two films have been made about Christine and her death. Speaking recently to The Sun, Christine's brother Greg said, Of course the fact that she was a virgin and a spinster will be their focus. Her boyfriend, who died in a car accident, was in his early 20s, and Christine was still a teenager. The second was with a man who also worked in television. Her brother went on to say, She moved to Pittsburgh to be with him, but the relationship fell apart because my dad was vociferously opposed to him. He was older, and my dad did not want her to marry a Jewish man. He said that he worked hard to prevent any films about Christine's death being produced while his mother was living, and that he would not see either film. He stated that the focus on her lack of romantic life diminishes her struggles with mental health instead of raising awareness for suicide prevention. He also said that his parents had spent a fortune trying to figure out why their gorgeous, beautiful, brilliant daughter didn't react the same as everyone else. He now believes that his sister suffered from bipolar disorder, which was not well understood in the 1970s. Public suicide is another level beyond suicide, he says. It's an anger and rage that I can't understand, and I've thought about it every day for 42 years. There's nothing glorious about suicide or what it does to the people who loved the person. It goes without saying that Christine's violent act was a cry for help. Again, if you or someone you know is experiencing thoughts of suicide, please call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255.
The Lifeline provides free confidential support 24-7. On a more positive note, the president recently signed into law a designated suicide prevention phone number, 988. It is scheduled to go live September 2021. In the meantime, call 1-800-273-8255 for free round-the-clock support. I hope that you will all remember to make each day worth living. In my next episode, I will explore the last words of people who face their last moments with humor and wisdom. Thank you for listening to The Last Word, a true life podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Faith. See you next time.